Today we're thinking about the next episode of the book of Exodus in our series Stepping Out with a Saving God. And we're going to cover a huge chunk of this book today, seven chapters. Uh, We're not going to read them all before we start, uh, although you could always press pause and and read the lot and come back in half an hour. But uh, we're just going to read a little from chapter 25 and some of chapter 31. And then we'll think about the whole lot together and I'll, I'll kind of bring you up to speed as we go. I should say up front that in the first part of the sermon, as I summarize the chapters and describe lots of items that God wants the Israelites to build, uh, I'm going to refer to a number of pictures from the ESV Study Bible. You can see them uh, on the YouTube version of this sermon, and maybe you would prefer to watch rather than listen on this occasion. Uh, But it's only in the first part, so feel free to keep going uh, like this. Let's read from Exodus chapter 25. Uh, We'll read verses 1 to 9, and then we'll flick over to chapter uh, chapter 31. So Exodus 25 from verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and hides of sea cows, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And then uh, we have chapters and chapters of instructions of what to build and how to do that. And then turn to chapter 31, where there's a summary of sorts. So chapter 31. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of craftsmanship. Moreover, I have appointed Oholiab, son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan, to help him. Also, I have given skill to all the craftsmen to make everything I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony with the atonement cover on it, and all the other furnishings of the tent, the tabernacle, uh, the table and its articles, the pure gold lampstand and all its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering, and all its utensils, the basin with its stand, And also the woven garments, both the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests, and the anointing oil and fragrant incense for the holy place. They are to make them just as I commanded you. Then down at verse 18 of chapter 31, when the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. Well, our title for today is Dwelling with God. Dwelling with God. Home. Home, sweet home. Home is where the heart is. You don't need to be a little girl with a small dog and a pair of ruby slippers to agree that there is no place like home. Or, since it's 2020 and the strangest year of our lives, let's admit I need to get away from home. This is the 12th Sunday in a row that we've quote-unquote, met from our own homes, Uh, maybe 10th or 11th if you're watching from the UK, but still, let's not be ungrateful. Things could always be harder. 
Uh, we're thinking today about home. Not just the four walls, but about who makes home, home. Parents see their kids grow up and leave home, and that changes what home feels like. Suddenly, uh, home feels empty. Um, with, with a few silver linings, I would imagine. Uh, I guess home would also look tidier and smell fresher. But mostly, of course, the, the empty thing, yes. Um, or when two people get married, they set up home together. They combine their possessions. They move into a place. They decide where the furniture goes. And they discuss issues such as whether any living person needs so many bottles and tubs in one bathroom or whether an adult really needs to have a Lego display area. All the fun of setting up home. And that's what this week's episode of Exodus is all about. Setting up home. Dwelling with God. Last week, God confirmed his covenant with Israel, uh, kind of like a, a wedding between God and his people. Uh, and now we see them setting up home together. Moses has been called up onto Mount Sinai into the blazing cloud of God's presence to receive further instruction. And today's passage is a huge monologue from God to Moses, telling him how the people are to make a special home for him so that he can dwell among them. These chapters are building instructions, verbal blueprints, mostly in the format, make this, using this, this, and that, and do it in this way. Incidentally, uh, in chapters 35 to 40, we're going to find some very similar detail, mostly in the format, the people made this, using this, this, and that, and they made it according to the instructions God had given Moses. Overall, the column inches in Exodus that are given to this tent home for God are about the same as those given to the rescue of the people from Egypt in the first place. Why is that? Why is it so important? Uh, well, let's find out. And let's start by getting an idea of the big picture of these seven chapters. What's in them? Uh, let's summarize with our first heading. God designs a home among his people. God designs a home among his people. Take a look at chapter 25, verses 1 to 9, which we read. It all starts with an offering. Each man whose heart prompts him is to give. Um, not not uh, forced, but um, voluntary. And they're to give all these rich and luxurious materials, precious metals, spices, fabrics, gemstones, and more. Where did all this stuff come from? Well, much of it came from Egypt when God allowed them to plunder the Egyptians as they left. The Egyptians were so desperate to see the back of God's people after his miracles that they loaded them with whatever they wanted so that they would just go. So even the means to make these offerings has been provided by God, just as in the final verses in chapter 31, the skill to, to use them has been provided by God. But what is all this provision for? Well, it's for God to dwell with his people, verses 8 and 9. Uh, then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. The tabernacle is a tent. Uh, it will be God's tent among his tent-dwelling nation. God designs a home among his people. And then he moves in in chapter 40, not to get ahead of ourselves, but chapter 40, verse 34, then the cloud, which was on the mountain before, covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's where this is going. That's the climax and the, the joy of it all at the end. Uh, the God who made the whole universe, the God who could create any glorious focal point for his presence anywhere in the cosmos, and who at this time is enveloping a whole mountain in cloud and flame, says to his people, 
I'm going to live with you in a tent, and I'm going to let you build it for me. I've already arranged for you to have the materials. I'll give you the instructions. I'll give you the skills. You'll build it, and I'll come with you. God provides a way to dwell with his people. Let's take a quick tour of chapters 25 to 31, and we'll paint a picture of God's grand design. Um, no Kevin MacLeod, but a grand design nonetheless. I'll give you a few verses to look at as we go, um, and I'm going to be using some pictures, as I said, from the ESV Study Bible. You might find them if you just search for ESV Study Bible Tabernacle on Google. Uh, you might get uh, several pictures that look like they're from a similar source. That's probably them. Anyway, look at chapter 25, verse 10. This is a surprise. The first thing about the tabernacle is not the tabernacle. Normally, when you buy a house, you start with the house. And then you think about how to furnish it or where everything goes. Well, the house is the main thing, not, not a particular piece of furniture. But here, the tabernacle starts with the most important piece of furniture, the ark. It's a chest of acacia wood overlaid with gold and fixed up with poles so that it can be carried without being touched. So it's not really furniture, but a very, very fancy box, a chest. The main thing about the whole sanctuary is what's in the box, the testimony, which, as we saw at the end of chapter 31, is the pair of stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God with the very words and laws of God. It's the basis of their covenant. It's the wedding vows binding God and Israel together. And it's kept in the most holy and expensive and beautiful part of the sanctuary. Uh, this, uh, the, 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 the testimony, uh, the stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God with the very words of God and laws of God, the basis for their covenant is kept in the holiest and most expensive and most beautiful part of the sanctuary. Is the audio freezing here? I'm looking at its screen. Uh, well, let's press on. Hopefully it's not jumping too much. Uh, and over the law, on the top of the ark, there is a cover. Verse 17. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, and make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put, the ark, uh, put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. There above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. So make an atonement cover. The footnote uh, gives an alternative name for this cover of the ark, a mercy seat. Um, uh, on top of the box that contains the law that human beings cannot possibly keep, there is a lid called mercy. In fact, it's a mercy seat, probably in the sense of a place, but perhaps uh, as a throne, a throne called mercy. Just above the lid where God's presence will be, there's a throne called mercy. And that's where uh, God mercifully meets his people. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest will sprinkle the blood of the sin offering on this mercy seat, this cover, to atone for the sin of God's people, to make one, make them one with God. Uh, what else is there? Well, verse 23, there is a table, also gold-plated acacia wood, with pure gold plates and dishes and the bread of the presence, 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes always there in the presence of God in the light of the lampstand. Uh, verse 31, also pure gold uh, modeled on a flowering almond tree. 
then in chapter 26, there's the tabernacle itself, a large tent with an acacia wood framework and curtains of fine linens, yarn, and on the outside, skins. Um, might be the desert, but ought to be waterproof. Uh, there were two compartments inside, the holy place and the most holy place. The compartments were separated by the most elaborate and beautiful of all the curtains, complete with a pattern of cherubim, angels, warning that behind the curtain, in the most holy place, above the ark, was the invisible presence of a dangerously holy God. In the holy place, just outside that, uh, there was the table and the lampstand, and as we find in chapter 30, the altar of incense. Uh, then there was another slightly less elaborate curtain over the entrance to the tabernacle. Uh, and in chapter 27, we step outside the tent into the courtyard, a large outdoor space containing the bronze-plated altar for burnt offerings, which obviously can't go inside the tent, fire safety and all that. Uh, and there's a bronze basin that's described in chapter 30, not so much for hand hygiene as ritual washing, symbolizing the need to be clean before God. Chapter 28 is all about what the priests will wear. There's a tunic, which is a long white linen gown. Uh, over that, there's a blue robe. Then there's the ephod, which is like an apron, very beautiful, with two precious stones on the shoulders, engraved with the names of the 12 tribes, so that Aaron, the priest, always carries the names of God's people before God. There's the breast piece, which is like a small armor plate over the chest, that's got a different precious stone for each tribe close to Aaron's heart. There are bells on the hem of the robe so that the priest jangles when he goes into the tabernacle. You don't just, uh, you don't just ghost into the presence of God. Well, um, kind of irony in that. It's very dangerous. Um, uh, there's a turban with a gold plate on the forehead uh, inscribed with the words, Holy to the Lord, so that those words face God for him to see as this human being comes into his presence. Chapter 29 is full of gruesome details of the sacrifices and preparations needed. Firstly, just to cleanse the priests so that they can begin their work, and then details of what the regular sacrifices would be and what they would be for. Chapter 30 has more details of other items and practices before we come to chapter 31, where we learn who is going to build all this, men appointed and creatively equipped by God to, uh, to be able to make everything that he's designed. Um, finally, there are commands about keeping the Sabbath. And at the end of the chapter, God gives Moses the two stone tablets, as it says, inscribed by the finger of God. Overall, we're building towards a bigger picture, a sanctuary where God could dwell with his people. Uh, and later there will come detailed instructions for how the whole thing is to be dismantled and transported, how the tribes should arrange themselves as they walk with it, and how it should be set up in the camp, and how the tribes should camp around it with God's sanctuary in the middle, right at the heart of his people. Now, I hope that's given enough of a sense of what's in these chapters so that we can keep going. Uh, they are worth reading slowly. It's a glorious, grand design. Um, unbelievable. Um, anyway, God designs a home among his people. That's our first idea. And this is our second heading. And there's a but. So God designs a home among his people, but the tabernacle is not God's forever home. The tabernacle is not God's forever home. You know what I mean by a forever home. It's not the one that newlyweds move into. It's maybe not even the one after that. It's the last one. It's the last home, the one they live in while the kids grow up. They stay in after that. They extend it. They remodel it. Uh, and they don't move out of it um, 
until they have to, perhaps. <laughs> and they redecorate like it's the fourth rail bridge. You know, once it's finished, you start over again. Now, normally I'm a bit cautious about aspiring to a forever home. I think it's more American dream than gospel priority. But today, let's think of it as a good thing. If, uh, if God could live with his people forever, a forever home, then that would be a good thing. Uh, but this design, this version, is not the one. It's not God's forever home. Why not? Let, let's go a bit deeper. What's the architect's vision here? You know, there's a maritime museum in Osaka, Japan, uh, and it's a huge glass dome, and the main exhibition uh, is a ship inside the dome uh, because the architect's vision was a ship in a bottle. What's the vision here? Well, the vision is Eden. God placed the first man and woman in the garden paradise home of Eden. It was safe and secure, a place of provision and plenty centered around the tree of life. And it was even a home where God would walk with them. God lived with them or was at home with them in a way in the garden. But when Adam and Eve rejected God, he put them out of that home and he set a guard of cherubim and a flaming sword on the east side to bar the way back, Genesis 3. And since then, God and man have not been at home with one another. But this tabernacle is a way to live together again. And there are lots of echoes of Eden. So the materials for the tabernacle begin with gold and end with onyx, both mentioned in Eden in Genesis chapter 2. The lampstand with its buds and blossoms looks like a tree that gives light, echoing the tree of life in Eden. Seven times in these chapters we read, The Lord said to Moses, and seven times in Genesis 1, we read, God said. The key craftsmen are said to be equipped by God's Spirit, who doesn't get much of a mention in these early books of the Old Testament, um, but who in Genesis 1 is also said to be poised for the work of creation. The tabernacle courtyard was to have a single entrance on the east side, just like Eden. The curtain that closed off the most holy place was to be designed with cherubim guarding the access to God's presence just like Eden. And the climax of both the creation account and the tabernacle chapters is the Sabbath, resting at home with God. Lots of echoes of Eden. And some of those echoes are positive and some of them are not. Uh, they are kind of post-fall, post-exile uh, echoes. God's presence is still reserved. It's still guarded. This is a huge step forward, but it's a long way from here to the idea of walking with the Lord in the cool of the day, Genesis chapter 3. It's hardly a forever home. It's not up there with Eden. Instead, this new home is full of home truths. For one thing, not everyone is welcome into all parts of this home. Far from it. There are zones like Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is the place where God is meeting his people right now, and the tabernacle is like Sinai on the move. The courtyard around the tabernacle is like the lowest slopes where the people could approach. Uh, the, the first room inside, called the holy place, was like the part of Sinai where the elders of Israel could come up and meet God, a place for selected representatives. And the most holy place was like the very top of Sinai, a place where only one representative could go. You might think of it all like a nuclear power plant in the middle of God's people. It has to be built correctly and approached correctly and with great caution. Access is restricted to a select few who have specific clothing to wear and tasks to perform. It brings awesome power and blessing, but it's tremendously dangerous. Approach in the wrong way and die. This is a home, but it's not exactly homely. 
It's not a forever home. What else? Well, aside from the zones and restrictions, there are the guards, cherubim embroidered on the curtain to the most holy place, guarding and barring the way like the angel of Genesis 3. The way to God is still almost entirely closed off. What else? Well, the, the people are not to touch things. I remember visiting a church with our family when the kids were much younger, kind of toddler age. Uh, we stayed with a couple for lunch. Their children had flown the nest, and they were in that tidy, ultra-grown-up stage. Uh, everything was lovely, everything was delicate, and nothing was toddler-proof. Now, they were very welcoming and relaxed, and, and they didn't tell us to stop the kids touching anything, but there was just so much that caught their little eyes and invited their little hands. I'm, I might be exaggerating, but I feel like I remember all of it was breakable. A very stressful afternoon altogether. Um, not a couple who's likely to come across this recording, I don't think, but we were, we were very welcome. <laughs> Uh, in God's home, the people are not to touch things, which is tricky considering it'll be constantly dismantled and moved and reassembled. But all the furniture has rings attached for poles to be used for carrying. The people are not to touch the furniture of God's home. They're to move it all by the poles. And of course, if we're looking for other clues that this is not a forever home, not a forever way for God to live with his people, then we have to include all the blood. Um, there's a moment in, in the film Jurassic Park uh, when the T-Rex catches and eats a smaller dinosaur and the little boy who's in the show, is it Timmy? I can't remember. I think it is. Uh, he watches on and, and gasps, look how much blood. <laughs> well, in chapter 29, a bull and two rams are to be slaughtered in God's presence and the blood daubed on the, on the corner horns of the altar and poured at its, at its base and sprinkled on the altar and daubed on the right ears of the priests and their right thumbs and their right big toes and even sprinkled on those priestly garments uh, that were so beautiful and designed to give them dignity and honor. Uh, in verse 2 of, of the chapter about those, um, those clothes will be spattered with blood. Not to mention that the altar is going to be put to a shocking amount of use. This courtyard of this mobile temple looks less like a worship space and more like an abattoir. The consecration of the priests alone involves a bull sacrifice every day for a week. And then the normal running of the tabernacle for the foreseeable future goes like this. Chapter 29, verse 38. This is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day. Two lambs a year old. Offer one in the morning and the other at twilight. Verse 42, for the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the, at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. There I will, speak, uh, I will meet you and speak to you. There also I will meet with the Israelites and the place will be consecrated by my glory. There's just a lot of blood and a lot of death in this home. Sin is deadly. That's uh, undeniably the, the picture here. Sin is deadly. The wages of sin is death. Death is what we are paid. It's the wages that we are owed for sin. And coming close to God meant death. This tabernacle was a place where a substitute could die instead so that God's people could come close to him. It is good news. But for all the echoes of that Genesis paradise, this is not exactly Eden. The tabernacle is not God's forever home. And one last hint of this comes in a little repeated phrase. So chapter 25, verse 9 says, Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Chapter 25, verse 40, See that you make them according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. 
Chapter 26, verse 30, set up the tabernacle according to the plan shown you on the mountain. And chapter 27, verse 8, it is to be made just as you were shown on the mountain. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, quotes this phrase and tells us that the tabernacle is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. I don't think that means that there is a better tent or even a physical building in heaven that is some sort of architectural masterpiece that Moses needs to, to imitate. Um, um, it means that the tabernacle points to genuine, eternal fellowship between God and human beings. That's what the Garden of Eden was until we broke it. That's what the whole Old Testament is searching for, a forever home for God and his people to share. And that leads us to the last, uh, and I promise the shortest of today's headings. <clears throat> God makes a home with us in Jesus. The tabernacle is not God's forever home, but God makes a home with us in Jesus. Hebrews 8 to 10 is the go-to part of the New Testament to understand the tabernacle. So let's dip into Hebrews 9, uh, sort of in the middle. So Hebrews 9 verse 11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did, not enter, he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? God provides a way to dwell with his people. And for us, it's not a tent or a temple or even a church building. It's Jesus Christ. The tabernacle is full of flashbacks to the first creation where God dwelled with human beings and it's full of anticipation for the new creation where God will dwell with his new humanity. And that means the tabernacle is a massive signpost to Jesus. Jesus entered the presence of God by his own blood. He actually had no sin to keep him out. He had every right. He was welcome with God, at home with God. But he spilled his blood all the same to atone for our sin so that he could take us with him so that we can come to God with Jesus. L look around that tabernacle scene once more and see Jesus. The law in the ark, well, Jesus fulfilled it completely. The atonement cover, Jesus atoned for our sin with his own blood. Uh, the presence of God above the ark, well, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. His spirit lives in us if we are his and his people, the church. Uh, John 1 says of Jesus, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Literally, it says, Jesus tabernacled among us, just to make sure we get it. He pitched up with us. The table with the presence of, of uh, the bread of God's presence that's always in the holy place. Well, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jesus, whose body we symbolically eat as we share bread at communion. Jesus, who now speaks for us, in God's presence. The lampstand giving light to the whole space. Well, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. The courtyard, the place of access for God's people. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
the basin for washing, Jesus who washed his disciples' feet uh, in that picture of cleansing on the night before his death. The curtain barring the way to the most holy place, which later tore from top to bottom in the temple as Jesus hung on the cross. Jesus, the true priest. Jesus, the true sacrifice. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. In Jesus, the one true, holy creator God is with us, at home with us. In Jesus, our sin has been dealt with and the wages of sin has been paid out. Jesus did not sin. He didn't owe God his life, but he died as our substitute to receive what was owed for our sin. Not over and over, day by day or week by week or on every new altar, but once and for all on the cross so that no altars are now needed. And in Jesus, something even better is coming. The tabernacle was a copy and a shadow of something better, a meeting place between God and his people that will endure, where human beings will offer pure worship in the presence of God forever. And Jesus said, in my Father's house are many rooms, and I am going there to prepare a place for you. And I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Sometimes God feels a little far off, doesn't he? He feels remote and hard to know. And he is all of those things in a way. He's not tame. He's not domesticated. He's not simple or small. And he's not altogether like us. And for sure, when we read the Old Testament, it's hard for any of that to change. We don't um, we don't feel him closer to us as we read of all this complexity and, and gore. But don't look at the shadows without looking for the light. Let the old point to the new. Look again and again and again at Jesus. Jesus is God making his home with us. Jesus is what God is like. If you belong to him, trusting and following him, then Jesus is with you, near you, walking alongside you, never to leave you, bringing you along this bumpy, difficult, painful road home. And if you're not a Christian, if you're not trusting and following Jesus, then notice this. All of these promises and blessings are ours only in Jesus. The tabernacle tells you that this God is not easily accessible. He is dangerously holy. In our sin and our rebellion, we don't belong with him. It's not safe, but he can be approached on his terms. He has made a way, thankfully not with priests and sacrifices and tents and temples, but through Jesus. So look into him. Investigate him, because it's all about him. Let's finish with just a few more verses from Hebrews. This is, this is it. Um, it says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised 
is faithful. Let's pray. Father God, we are weak and full of doubts and uncertainties. But you are the infinitely powerful and holy God who condescends to provide a way to dwell with us. Your Son walked the earth to reveal you to us and to open a way for us to have safe and wonderful access to you as we were created to enjoy. Thank you so much for his death in our place when you drew near to us so that we might draw near to you. Help us to trust in him and to focus on him and so rejoice in your presence with us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.